Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Richard Lee. This week we're putting art in the frame with the novelist Amy Sackville, who tackles time, truth and death in her latest novel, Painter to the King. But first we're off to the island of Majorca with the conductor Paul Kildare. After spells as head of music at the Alderborough Festival and director at the Wigmore Hall... Kildare published a biography of Benjamin Britten in 2013. He goes in search of the essence of romantic music with his latest book, Chopin's Piano, which opens in 1838 as the composer steps off the steamer in Palma. Chopin spent three months on the island with his lover, Georges Sand, working in a room at a former monastery. Writing to a friend in Paris, Chopin described the cell as shaped like a tall coffin, the enormous vaulting covered with dust, the windows small. In front of the window are orange trees, palms, cypresses. Opposite the window is my camp bed under a Moorish filigree rose window. Close to the bed is an old square grubby box, which I can scarcely use for writing on, with a leaden candlestick, a great luxury here. Bach, my scrawls and someone else's old papers. Silence. When I found Kildare in front of a gleaming Steinway Grand at London's Royal Overseas League, he began by taking us back to Chopin's room in that Majorcan monastery. What was the composer working on? He's actually working on quite a, a number of pieces that he'd, he'd come to a halt over um, in, in the course of the previous couple of years. But the collection that really intrigued me was this uh, set of 24 preludes that he'd begun in Paris, um, probably as early as 1835, in this winter in Majorca with Georges Sand, uh, which is the winter of 1838-39. The preludes are a sort of response, in some sense, to Bach's vol temporaire to clavier. What's the kind of response that he's making? How does he think of them, and, and what does he, how does he go about answering them? Chopin saw what we now see in them. Uh, he saw that these were actually you know, a monument of, of uh, Western civilization. And there's an account by one of his students that at one day at a, a lesson that he just sat down and from memory played uh, six or seven of the, um, the, the Bach preludes and fugues. So he knew them all intimately. And so as far as uh, him recognising this before anyone else, that's a really substantial achievement. By the end of the century, pianists like Anton Rubinstein uh, could also write about how valuable these pieces were, but not, you know, people weren't doing this and saying this in the 1830s. You have lots of overlaps between the Bach of the 48 and the Chopin in the 24, very much so in the very first one in C major. Uh, um, 
it's almost an exact imprint of what Chopin then gets up to into, in, in, into his, um, in the C major that opens his collection. There are also overlaps in, in things just like tonality. If you think of the end of the 15th prelude that Chopin wrote, um, the so-called raindrop... Um, it's it's so in that key, and and it's just it, it's absolutely the same way that Bach wraps himself around the key in um, his prelude in the same key. Etc. So he has his tribute to Bach, um, his hero, in lots of different ways, and there are obviously lots of different influences in the course of these pieces, but um, those are just some examples of the way that um, the Bach was inside his DNA as much as the uh, piano that he was writing them on ends up inside the preludes as well. They seem both of exactly the same world and yet entirely different. The interesting thing about the, the Chopin of the preludes is that he looked back you know, to Bach and also prefigured people like Debussy and Szymanowski and composers who in the 20th century or the very end of the 19th century said, oh, we also would like to write our um, homages to, to Bach. But also by the end of the 19th century, they were also writing their homages to Chopin. Chopin was very isolated in his cell, an isolation that's almost unimaginable today. So no smartphone, no radio, no gramophone. Did this seclusion leave some kind of mark on the preludes? I'm not sure about that. It seemed as though Chopin, even though he was very good in company, um, but even, at, even when he was with people and in salons and, and all the rest of it in, in his normal life in Paris, uh, there was still an isolation and exclusion um, in the way he thought and the way he, he interacted. So he internalised all the, the patterns of, um, of composition. And so I'm not sure that uh, Valdemosa in that regard um, influenced him. It did actually, only in the sense that it, it allowed him to step outside his normal life. And mostly his normal life consisted of teaching lots and lots of not terribly talented pupils just so that he could earn money. Don't forget that he wasn't like Liszt, a great showman and um, recitalist. Uh, and if he had been, he'd, he'd of course not had to teach at all and would have just made um, money from doing very large-scale recitals. So there was a sense that Valdemosa allowed him just to concentrate on composing, and, um, and that was unusual for him. But I think his character was more or less the same there as it was in Paris, which is this very kind of focused and withdrawn and serious musician. You paint a very striking picture of his compositional process, of music pouring out from him almost effortlessly as an improviser, and then the laborious process of getting it down on paper. What do you think is gained and what's lost by the fact that the only way Chopin could preserve and distribute his music is through scores? Yes, it's, it's this idea that, um, that the improvised tradition obviously had to be put down on paper and that he had to work very, very hard to get those initial thoughts down onto paper. Um, Georges Sand writes about this in her memoir, that what came out of him effortlessly then required an enormous amount of work, days and days and days, of just toying with tiny little phrases in an effort to recapture what he had originally had. And she'd say that often that uh, he would you know, lose completely, move quite far away from where, where he'd started, and then you know, over the course of the days or the composition of that piece would get closer and closer to what he'd originally originally improvised. Delacroix, um, who was a great friend of Chopin and, and really important to him, and especially in the last years of his life, thought that often the improvisations were more inspired and more dangerous than the pieces they came. 
And there possibly is some of that, uh, that, you know, that when you kind of let yourself go in an improvisation, you then find yourself, when, when it comes to writing it down, um, abiding by certain compositional laws or rules. And so Delacroix thought that, yeah, that those rules sometimes got the better of the mad inspiration that was there in the first place. But Chopin was such a rule-breaker himself that I, I, I'm not sure how much of a constraint um, writing the music down actually became. But even though he was very isolated, he wasn't working in complete silence. There was um, that little piano you mentioned uh, with a folding keyboard that was built by Juan Bowser. What, what was it like and how was it different? How was it different to the modern pianos like this glorious Steinway we have with us? The Bowser piano, we know a little bit about it. Um, it was only about four feet high. It was about six and a half octaves in its compass. We presume it was just um, a single stringed instrument, which means just you know one string per, um, per note. Quite primitive. Uh, Georges Sand uh, uh, describes it by saying um, Chopin is, is playing on this uh, local piano that he's had to hire because the, the piano that he was hoping to come from Paris hadn't yet arrived, and it causes him far more vexation than, um, than pleasure. Um, so we know all about that, but we also know that it was on this piano, this, this local piano made by this craftsman, that he completed uh, the majority of the work on the preludes that he wrote there. And so that's nine or ten of the preludes were written on this piano. And you can feel the constraints of it, of the instrument in some of the pieces. Uh, if you think of even the, the very strange second uh, uh, prelude, which begins... ..etc., uh, it's him playing with this rather unusual sound at the bottom of the, of the instrument on the particular piano that he had. And the, the funny thing about that period is it, it's, the, it's the one that, that for the most of the 19th century that people just steered away from. They just said, this is too strange. What he's doing there transgresses all bounds of, of, of harmony and chromaticism. And in my mind, it's just that obviously that part of the piano had this very, very strange kind of sound to it, um, which he then stitches into um, his writing of the second prelude. But it wasn't just that it was smaller and quieter and less shiny than this Steinway. It was also tuned differently. Yes, equal temperament um, only came into being uh, into wide practice, probably at the end of the 19th century, um, certainly the first decades of the 20th. And so there would have been different types of temperament that this piano would have been tuned under. We don't know which. It's possibly a mean tone temperament. And what that means is that uh, certain keys end up sounding less stable than other keys. And it, equal temperament on this, like this beautiful instrument here means that more or less every key has the same sort of structural stability as the others. But if you think of the, the middle of the, um, the raindrop prelude, which we're fairly certain he wrote in Majorca, or at least finished there, you've got the modulation from the D-flat, uh, which is the key that it starts in, to the relative, and that key would almost certainly be far less stable um, uh, on the Bowser instrument. In San's description of it, that's, of course, where the storm starts in, in the raindrops. Uh, and she describes how she came back from trying to get the new French piano out of customs in Parma and comes through this incredibly awful storm that lasts for seven hours. The trip lasts for seven hours instead of the customary two. And she comes back and finds him um, playing this new piece. And that that's the piece that uh, she says it was. So, yes, he was playing, I, I think, you know, with the instrument, with its temperament, with some of the influences that he was hearing around him, um, 
all put through that marvellous filter of his that you know, came out with this um, really astonishing collection of pieces. It wasn't just pianos, though, was it? I mean, in the 19th century, music got steadily bigger and louder. Was this being driven basically by technology or was it economics? Uh, it's both, actually. And you have someone like uh, Liszt saying, OK, I don't want to do what Chopin does, which is play for small salons and, and very, very select gatherings. I want to play in big concert halls and earn a lot of money. Um, and so he's, of course, uh, one of the key figures pushing the advancement of uh, piano technology, ever requiring bigger and larger things. And I think it's only because in the 1850s, Liszt starts to concentrate more on composing rather than playing, that the advancement and the enlargement of the piano didn't, even, it didn't happen even a little um, sooner. There is this sense uh, that pianos are having to fill larger spaces, and um, these small French instruments that Chopin liked so much weren't necessarily going to be up to the task. And you have this whole um, blossoming of recital culture in the 1850s and 1860s throughout Europe, and pianos are having to kind of now fill these big halls. And, and as soon as uh, Steinway comes up with his uh, very famous patent um, in the 1859 um, for a cross-strung grand piano, um, all bets are off by that stage. Uh, and, and people madly scramble either to try and keep up with Steinway or to resist fiercely um, the, these changes. And as the pianos get bigger and louder, the preludes get bigger and louder with them. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and this is, of course, what van der Landoska thought, that, that people were playing the preludes in a way that was quite foreign to how Chopin would have played it. And I think that's it, that people didn't really know what to do with these beautiful little miniatures. And they decided that they had to be something far bigger than the sum of their parts. And, and so you, you start, first of all, by about the 1870s, you start hearing the 24 being played as a group, something that Chopin never did, and then also uh, being played in, in a way that just kind of tried to fill the space and the instruments of the time. And so I've got this lovely line in the book by Malcolm Gillies, uh, the, the music historian, where he says, you know, Chopin grew away from the piano after his death. Uh, but I say, actually, it's more accurate that the piano grew away from Chopin. So in what way does that actually translate for the music? How would, I don't know, Rubinstein or Paderewski, how would they be playing it differently to the way that it might have been imagined in Chopin's head? Um, it just did actually become uh, bigger, just became bigger and louder and faster. Um, it was André Gide who said, uh, I wish that you know, I could just print on every uh, score of Chopin slowly, you know, just take, take more time to think about this. But then there are contradictions in that. Raoul Kozowski, who was a very, very uh, brilliant young pianist, who was a grand pupil of Chopin's, he played things uh, incredibly differently. If you, if you think of uh, the fourth prelude, which he wrote in Majorca, which we're used to today hearing something like this. Uh, Raul Kozlowski played it like this. I don't know. It's, it's no coincidence, I think, that uh, Chopin wrote that after being on a paddle steamer uh, for 20 hours or however long. And that's what I hear in it. So that's the actual pace, the, the churn of a paddle steamer. And um, Kozlowski uh, um, learned that from his teacher who learned it from, um, from Chopin. So uh, perhaps that's it. But uh, 
other players, the players that I became very interested in, in trying to step outside what Chopin had become in, in the course of the late 19th century and 20th century, was Richter. And he plays this in a recital in Tokyo in 1979 in a way that is so different from the way that this piece became to be played in the, in the, in the 20th century. He really recaptured this idea of improvisation, that when people heard Chopin play, they really thought as though he was just plucking these ideas out of the air for the first time, and as though the idea had just come to him. And um, Richter does that really well in, in this prelude. It's, it's so slow and so incredibly beautiful, and you don't really know where the harmonies are going, which is actually really concordant with the piece. Etc. And that actually, given that it's the strangest harmony that just falls down, you know, step by step, it really does give the sense that um, oh, actually we don't know where this piece is going. And and it's no coincidence that at the very end, Chopin doesn't even really know where it's going, and he ends up here. And so he goes, well, we better resolve. gets us back to our home key but it's after it's after quite a drip drip journey it has to be said you can almost hear the eyebrows moving every time (laughs) (laughs) the 19th century was uh, was the triumph of sound over form It's, it's one of the reasons why i mean to go back to malcolm gillies again is one of the reasons why the 20th century never really took in music was that the pendulum swung back towards form yeah, I think that's fair, that, that the argument between sound and form uh, is much like the argument in art between you know, colour and line, and that Chopin, of course, in these, in the preludes, was thinking entirely about colour and you know, sound, if you like, and that uh, people like Liszt, people like Schumann, um, found the preludes so incomprehensible because they were still very much interested in form. And in the 20th century, the argument gets muddied because we're having to work out what happened to Romanticism and funnily enough, in the, in the post-war, the idea of these great Germanic works that were written, um, which, you know, if you want to reduce the argument to um, Germanic structure and form and French sound um, and colour, if you like, that's where it falls. So in the 20th century, this argument about what music was and, and uh, how form was an important part of that becomes really, really uh, entrenched in, in the battles between um, the great modernists, post-war modernists and experimental um, composers and, um, and those with more traditional bent. Was it that the triumph of sound continues, but in popular music, with amplification, with, with stadium rock? Yeah, I think so. We moved away from the monumentalism of uh, symphonic writing that, that people like Berlioz um, kept trying to make larger and larger and larger. And I suppose that did go to uh, outside the confines of, um, of classical music into more um, you know, modern pop music. So what happened to Chopin's tiny ship's piano? Ah, well, the piano um, is ingloriously left behind um, at the monastery when they leave hurriedly in February 1839. And the piano remains there um, untouched for 70 years. In 1911, um, the Polish harpsichordist Wanda Landowska um, visits uh, Majorca to do a series of concerts and makes a pilgrimage up to uh, the, the monastery. And there she finds the piano. 
And because of her, at this stage, she'd started to collect instruments, not just for um, sentiment or historical um, interest. It was that she wanted to know how these instruments affected the way people um, composed and played music, um, what we'd now call the historically informed performance um, movement. Uh, so she finds this piano and offers to buy it, and two years later succeeds, um, brings the piano with her to Berlin. Um, and there it's photographed very beautifully by a young Alexander Binder, and that's why we know so much about this piano, because the photographs are so good. Landowska takes it with her to Paris when she moves there um, in the 1920s, and it's part of her collection at her house in Saint-Louis-la-Forêt um, in the northern suburbs of Paris, and it's there that she founds um, a school in 1926, and lots of very eminent young harpsichordists come and work with her. And so for all those summers until um, 1939... This is a scene of, of enormous uh, music-making and, and historical importance. So the Nazis, uh, of course, march into Paris in 1940, and Landowska, because she's uh, Jewish, gets out just before they arrive. And they knew about this piano. Uh, there are actual documents saying, we want to get the Chopin piano. And it's a very interesting thing that they, they put to one side um, the inconvenience of Chopin's nationality and decide that Chopin belongs uh, not just to all humanity, but that once the war is over, the Germans will be custodians of high culture and Chopin will be part of the, their um, portfolio, if you like. Um, so this piano is seen as very important to them. So in uh, 1941... Her house is looted, and um, her entire collection of books and manuscripts and recordings and instruments are packed up and shipped to um, to Berlin. And then after um, the war starts to go in the Allies' favour, that collection is moved to Leipzig. And then when the bombers come as far as Leipzig, this piano, the Chopin piano, is moved to a monastery in Reitenhaslach, um, and where it uh, sees out the end of the war. And then... <laughs> well, the and then is because the Germans were terribly efficient, um, uh, they notated absolutely everything, and so the instrument was found in Reitenhaslach. It was returned, uh, to uh, first of all, to Munich, uh, where it was catalogued by the so-called Monuments Men, um, and then it was restituted to uh, Landowska's place in the north of Paris. Um, she never returned to France after the war, and it was quite common that a lot of uh, emigres uh, didn't want to return. I, I interviewed uh, wonderful Anita Lasker-Wolfisch, and I asked her at one point, did you ever go back or did you want to go back to Germany after the war? And she, of course, survived Auschwitz. And she said, no, I, I didn't want to because I would find myself looking at men of a certain age and above and just wonder what they'd gotten up to um, between 1933 and 45. So Landowska didn't go back either. And um, so the piano uh, goes back to her house uh, where it kind of remains. And then, well, something happens to it uh, between 1954 when it was last seen and talked about and 1958 when I, I know it wasn't there anymore. So still at large... Still at large, yes. Uh, hopefully, because of those beautiful Binder photographs and because it is actually quite a distinctive-looking piano, um, so even though Sand was very rude about it, even though I've been slightly rude about it, um, it was obviously a thing of great beauty. Um, and so this craftsman had spent a lot of time making something very distinctive and very unusual. So hopefully, because of all those reasons, perhaps now with this book, that someone will say, well, actually, I know, you know which collection that's in. Maybe one day you'll get to play preludes on that piano. 
I hope so. That would be the most beautiful thing to do. It's, I've, I've played, of course, the piano that Chopin had with him um, when he toured the United Kingdom in 1848, and, and it is an enormous privilege to play uh, in the finger, fingerprints of, um, of someone you know, that eminent and that amazing, and to play some of his music on it is, is an enormous privilege. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to The Guardian Books Podcast. The novelist Amy Sackville burst onto the scene in 2010 with her ice-filled debut, The Still Point. After returning to the north in 2013's Orkney, Sackville heads for the dust and sweat of Madrid in Painter to the King. This vivid portrayal of 17th century life is framed by glimpses of a narrator in 21st century Madrid, but when I caught up with Sackville at the Hay Festival, she began with a reading from the novel where Velasquez is ushered into the king's presence for the first time. The king stands at a console table and looks as if he has stood for centuries since he was sculpted there, unblinking, a basilisk. He raises one hand, slowly, slowly to his brow in greeting. The painter hurriedly pulls his hat from his head and bows again. The count has an easel ready for him and a canvas primed. The painter unrolls his wrap and lays out his brushes, prepares his palette under the Count's attention and the King's sublime indifference. And when all is ready and still the King is at his console, he suggests to the Count that His Majesty might sit, wondering if it is in his power to make such a suggestion. But the King somehow achieves his throne without seeming to move any muscle or limb and sits graciously, and the Count takes his gloves from him. His movements, his gestures are seamless, smooth, and he does not breathe discernibly or blink. He is thin but not feeble, young, five, six years younger than the painter and looks younger still. Wet eyes, wet coralline lips, just bitten, just licked, and yet seeming now without utterance and unlikely ever to part. Fairer than any one of his subjects, thinks the painter, feeling sunburnt and southern and itchy and coarse. Moving forward a pace, his hands go out to turn the shoulders and stop and gesture in the air instead, and he hopes that the air in which he gestures is not too close to the king's body. The king mildly does as he is bid. Over the last 19 years, he's had many portraits painted. By now, he knows the process. The painter's nerves are fizzing. He almost left his hat on. Now he has to, now, get this right. He must make the right impression. He knows he's capable, he is sure he can, except what if he can't? He is so tired but his hand is sure. He works quickly, so quickly it's amazing, straight onto the canvas, the length of the head, the width of the head, the shoulders and how they are set, the fleshy chin which he sees the king hold forth, the jut, but not the excess of pride in it, the faintest boyish fold of skin below, the pale skin that he makes paler, glowing, 
the fair lights in the hair glossing them, the red full lips reddened, the pink flush of the cheek, the tip of the ear, but also the faintest traces of tiredness and care already, which he sees and knows and doesn't paint over, which make a divot in the forehead and hang about the eye sockets, the skull under the skin, the veins below the thin temple skin, the same carmine from the lips at the lids, almost lashless, dark pupils glinting, but glinting in the distance. It is a portrait of a man, just a man, a very radiant, regal man in simple black and plain collar and no crown. They do not wear crowns, these kings. All the weight of the rain is worn invisibly. Perhaps it is this invisible crown that dents his brow. The painter works at it all day, unstinting. Sometimes there are other people there, sometimes he is brought refreshment. Sometimes he glances out of the window and sees that the sun has moved and hours have passed and that's why the light has shifted and he compensates. The work is finished by the time evening comes. The king doesn't smile exactly, but makes a sound through his nose like a sigh, which might be a laugh. He is apparently pleased. His family are pleased. His brothers Carlos and Fernando are pleased. The queen? Well, the queen's view is undisclosed. She is perhaps indisposed. Perhaps the count doesn't think to ask her in, but otherwise they are all astounded. He did this in a day, and they all agree the painter has painted a true portrait or, even better, has found a way to flatter without seeming to resort to falsehood. See the sincere care that haunts the eyes, the pallor of the fair skin, the perfect proportion of the regal chin. The Count tells him, no other has caught the king as you have. No other has truly painted the king before now. And the painter, as he exhales for what seems like the first time that day, spreads out his stiff, oily, painty fingers and feels them tremble and bows. So why Velasquez? Why now? Did you, um, like your fictional self, find your eye catching on Las Meninas in, in the Prado? That's pretty much exactly what happened. So I knew I wanted to write a book about a court painter and I was interested in the idea that such a person would be at the centre of a complex set of relationships and characters and have insight into all of those things but would be standing on the outside of them. And I thought I would make that character up but I think, retrospectively, Velázquez was always my model for that because I went to Madrid in order to see his paintings. And when I saw his paintings, I thought, actually, I'll just use that. Um, <laughs> and then researched his life a little bit and discovered this sort of fascinating relationship that he had with the king in particular, um, which I hadn't really known about before. And that sort of became more of a background to the book. Yeah, because it's, uh, he's not just any old painter, is he? He gets this extraordinary access to the right at the centre of the court. That's right, and... and as that extract that I've read, um, he was the only person in theory who was allowed to paint the king, and he did so for 38 years. So he has this kind of unique view upon this man who is a sort of intensely public man in the sense that everything he does is prescribed and rule-bound, and he has a kind of intimate, private space, oddly, within the space of being painted for public record. And that was the idea, this kind of collision between private and public? Yes, definitely. I think, I think I'm always quite interested in absences within texts and the idea that there's a sort of space at the centre through which the narration is occurring, if that makes sense. Um, so the idea that the painter has to absent himself in some way in order to gain the access, this very intimate access that he has. Because yeah, it's the most extraordinary court as well. Yes, um, incredible period I think it's the Spanish golden age and it's called that because of this extraordinary cultural flourishing while at the same time 
everything's falling to bits. They're completely bankrupt. Um, there's all kinds of corruption and machinations going on behind the surface. And it's that's sort of the point, is this kind of Baroque obsession with surfaces and with what's beneath the surface, the idea of life as a surface, um, what happens afterwards. So this, this kind of play of pretense and performance and dissembling. Was it also partly just a challenge to yourself to try and describe these paintings in prose? Yes, I mean, I think that's where I started out from, having settled on using Velázquez. I see it as a kind of experiment. I sort of see it as an experimental novel in that sense, that it is not just describing what the paintings are of, but trying to find ways to use the rhythm and texture of prose to emulate what's happening in the paintings and also how that technique changes over his career so it becomes much more fluid as his technique progresses. Did you actually have the paintings in front of you as you were writing or did you try and do it, as it were, from memory? A little bit of both. Um, I did keep referring back to them. It's almost like any sort of form of research that there's an element of you have to step away from it. I think in order to enable that fluidity, I couldn't just be staring at them and saying, and there is this thing there and this thing there, but sometimes I would have to refer back to check... um, it took me quite a long time to write. <laughs> I became very familiar with, with these paintings that I was working with. Because you're not just writing about, as you say, what's in the paintings. Mm. It's also something about the making, the kind of the dip swipe of his brush and also that interaction between the painter and, and, and the currents running through life at the course of the time. Did you, did you want to explore something about the complicated nature of time in a, in a picture? Yeah, definitely. I think that novels are always about time um, and how you deal with time is such a kind of integral part of what you're doing with form. And so to me that was quite an interesting tension, I suppose, between working with the static form and working with something that's inherently diachronic um, and moving through time. But Except that, of course, with, with, a, with a painted picture, yeah. the, the, it appears to record an instant, but actually it takes hours or days or months to produce. Yes, I, I completely agree, and I think that that's, that's something that is often forgotten about painting, that we see it as a snapshot and we think that we can take it in all at once, but of course we can't and it is painted over time I think even within hours the light shifts um, there's something incumbent upon the subjects to remain in that place Um, but also when we look at paintings it takes time to look at them and the time in which you know it took me five years to write this and there are points where I'm referring to the same painting or going back and redrafting something that I wrote three years ago and that's also something that I kind of wanted to incorporate into the text itself to say I'm returning to this point now, I'm thinking back to this thing now, even though I last thought about it three years ago. And not only that, but the pictures, the paintings that mm. Velázquez made, they're still here hundreds of years later. Yes, and that became... I sort of gradually realised that that was part of what I was writing about, was this idea of legacy, of, of what is left behind, um, of what endures. And I think that's something that Philip IV was very much concerned with both in terms of his progeny and this necessity of continuing his line which is really the sort of root of the tragedy of his life but also the necessity of recording his own image and the despair which he increasingly felt about that so they they sort of tail off these official portraits because he just couldn't bear to keep seeing himself aging because he's, Velasquez is not only a painter with access, he's also a painter who aspires in some sense to tell it like it is, to, to truth. Was that an, another of the things that was attractive to him in, in this era of fake news? <laughs> yes, um, I think that's 
that is an interesting element. And I think it's interesting within his own context that that was one of the reasons that Philip and his prime minister, the, the Count Duke, appointed him, is that he was quite sort of modern and trendy in that way, that he wasn't producing these kind of very... You know, he's working within the confines of formal portraiture, but they're supposedly very realist and honest. Um, and that idea of somebody that kind of refuses to capitulate, I think that's that's quite interesting, and the idea that that would be attractive to a leader. And yet he's in the business of PR. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, that's the thing that... In theory, he's not flattering, but he, of course, he must be to to a certain extent. That that Philip is, yes, he's a normal man, but he also looks very shiny. Yeah, but even the very fact of all these amazing pictures yeah. uh, at, at this great expense in these massive palaces—it's it's a PR stunt. So he's employed to decorate the palaces, and he's sent. The only reason he's allowed to leave the court ever is to go to Rome and buy stuff for the king to bring back because they've got all this disposable income which they don't have. Um, <laughs> And the, some of the research that I have made use of is just from true accounts of people coming into these spaces and saying that literally every space is covered. The backs of doors are covered. Um, and there's more of an emphasis on quantity than quality, in, in a sense. <laughs> You've included some black and white reproductions of his work in the text, but only tiny fragments, like a, an eye or an earthen jug or a folded piece of paper. Why, why these tiny details? I wanted to use some visual element I didn't want them to be purely illustrative or kind of deictic I didn't want it to be I'm describing this painting here it is for you to refer to I wanted them more to work kind of almost against the text or give the reader reason to pause and consider and think about in some ways it's it's a it's trying to be a book about seeing and making you stop and see those small fragments and details rather than thinking about this kind of total picture if that makes sense there's also the text is also kind of full of dashes sometimes two or three at a time was this to mimic the kind of quick swipe of the brush yeah exactly so that's something that came out of what's the word sort of writing exercises if you like experiments is trying to find my way into how the story would be told and kept sort of encountering this sense that i wanted a sense of lifting and stopping and pausing and correcting and going back over and because that's how he worked. Exactly. So there's there's something very gestural, I think, about his painting technique. Um, and I wanted to get a sense of that gesture within the text. And that's something that came out kind of instinctually. And then I sort of went back and interrogated and made up a rule for myself for how each of those pauses or dashes would function. Yeah, you've also included yourself, or, or at least a, a contemporary narrator a bit like yourself, mm-hmm. who's, who's on the trail of Velázquez in modern Madrid. Is it just because a novel about a painter needed some kind of frame? That's another thing which did come out sort of naturally um, and I had to work out what it was doing and whether I needed to keep it or whether I wanted to keep it. The passage that opens the text is one of the first things that I wrote which is about my encounter with Las Meninas in reality for the first time. There are various reasons it's there. I think one of them is that I'm, I don't want to pretend that I know. I want to unsettle the, the sort of historiographic function um, and acknowledge that it's construct and that seems to me to be quite in keeping with the period that I'm working with and the the Baroque theatre is constantly breaking the frame, characters are constantly turning to the audience and saying oh look what's going on here and of course it's the same is true of Las Meninas, we have the painter in the painting and I quite liked that idea of just sort of peeking in at the side now and again (laughs) 
It's also a narrator who's keenly interested in that uh, the, the idea of making fiction. You're wondering if a version of the Alcazar could be managed or who wants to simply set down the world as she passes through a world that is the same and different, as if she can testify to her passing presence in it. Is this a novel written against, in some sense, the fear of death? It's entirely about that, and that's something it took me a really long time to work out, and it is sort of the thing that eventually unlocked the book for me, I think, the fact that that is what's uniting everything, and that is partly why the narrator is there, um, that it's about mortality and it's about that sense of trying to grasp something that is always passing. Um, yeah, it took me quite a long time to figure that out. That was Amy Sackville. Painter to the King is published by Granter, while Chopin's Piano is published by Alan Lane in the UK and Norton in the US. Next week, we'll be on the trail of Greek myths with Daisy Johnson and Michael Hughes. In the meantime, you can subscribe and review us on all your favourite podcatchers. And join the discussion on Twitter or by leaving a comment on the podcast page or emailing us on bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Simon Barnard, thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.